Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, And right out of the gate, we will tell you that this episode is sponsored by Pinterest. Uh, And in fitting with that, it seemed natural to think about the types of things you might look at on Pinterest. Uh, And it's no secret that we absolutely love to talk about food and food history. It's been one of my favorites whenever we do a show about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And because I have kind of been on a tear of doing cookbook cook-throughs in the last couple of years, where basically I try to cook every recipe in a cookbook, uh, it got me starting to wonder about the earliest cookbooks. And that is how I landed at reading about Duricoquinaria, which is also referred to as Apicius, or sometimes the Apicius. And we're going to talk about that name Apicius because there's a little bit of a history mystery connected to it. But really, to talk about this cookbook, we have to talk first about the food culture of ancient Rome. So there are only a few surviving written accounts of Roman food culture from the first several centuries. Gaius Petronius Arbiter in his satire Satyricon includes a section that's titled Cenotrimalchionis, and he describes the banquet table of this uh, titular character in detail. This is Trimalchio, and that's the person of the story who is a formerly enslaved person who has acquired just ridiculous levels of wealth through all kinds of nefarious and unscrupulous means. And his life in the time the book is set is all about just indulgence and excess. And as a consequence, the descriptions of this banquet are probably an exaggerated version of what a person would typically find in a wealthy home of Rome. I mean, it it is a satire, (laughs) as the name suggests. But it still gives some insight uh, into what this world was like. Yeah, and it, it also gives some insight into the types of, of foods that they were using. So one course is described as follows, quote, On the tray stood a donkey made of Corinthian bronze, bearing pannier containing olives, white in one and black in the other. Two platters flanked the figure, on the margins of which were engraved Tramalchio's name and the weight of the silver in each. Dormice sprinkled with poppy seed and honey were served on little bridges soldered fast to the platter, and hot sausages on a silver gridiron, underneath which were damson plums and pomegranate seeds. And the course has just kept coming. It becomes apparent that the visual presentation was hugely important as an aspect of the meal. Quote, There was a circular tray around which were displayed the signs of the zodiac, and upon each sign the caterer had placed the food best in keeping with it. Rams vetches on Aries, a piece of beef on Taurus, kidneys and lambs fry on Gemini, a crown on Cancer, the womb of an unfarrowed sow on Virgo, an African fig on Leo, on Libra a balance, one pan of which held a tart and the other a cake, a small sea fish on Scorpio, a bullseye on Sagittarius, a sea lobster on Capricornus, a goose on Aquarius, and two mullets on Pisces. In the middle lay a piece of cut sod upon which rested a honeycomb with the grass arranged around it. So much work. So... (laughs) I got about halfway through that, and I was like, man, this is a lot. 
Right. And the guests, incidentally, uh, in this book were sort of chagrined by this course, which is described in the text as, quote, vile fare, and which Tremalchio assures them is, quote, only the sauce. And the group is next served stuffed capons and sow's bellies and a hare equipped with wings to resemble Pegasus. They were also served a wild boar with baskets hung from its tusks, Those baskets contained dates from Syria and Thebes. When Termalchio cut open the boar, live birds flew out, which sounds incredibly extravagant and also very gross. (laughs) I may have had a long discussion with my husband about how one would achieve such a thing (laughs) and why would you bother, Uh, which really summated to, I don't want to eat roasted anything that might have bird poop in it. Um... Another source for gaining insight into the tables of ancient Rome is Athenius of Naucratus. And Athenius contributed to the historical record of Rome's tables because he referenced and quoted famed ancient foodies in his work. And one of those that's brought to light in the writings of Athenius was Archistratus, who lived between 400 and 300 BCE on Sicily, so quite a ways back. Archistratus was not himself a cook. He was a connoisseur of all kinds of foods and wrote a poem titled Hedipathia, and that gives all kinds of details about food. But the evidence of that poem is found in the writing of Athenius, specifically a piece of writing from 228 CE, which is titled Philosophers at Dinner. In that book, the guests gathered for the dinner quote Archistratus to one another. The 62 fragments that appear in the writing of Athenius are all we have of this longer poem. The name Hedipathia translates to luxurious life or pleasant life. But even though we only have fragments, those quoted fragments once again give us an idea of what food was like along the Mediterranean. And it's mostly advice on where and when to get fresh seafood or how to prepare things for optimal flavor. And Archistratus is rather judgmental about how some people prepare their food. In one fragment, uh, he writes, quote, Do not allow anyone come near you when you bake seawolf, neither Syracusan nor Italiote, for they do not know how to prepare them decently but they ruin them and make a mess out of them with cheeses and sprinklings of the liquid vinegar and the sylphian brine. So there was clearly plenty of food culture in ancient Greece and Rome uh, well before this cookbook specifically is known to have existed. There was enough of a food culture that there were people who were famous gastronomes, and we'll talk about one of them in a moment. While there is some advice about food prep in their writings, most of these gastronomers were not cooks themselves. They were just really enthusiastic and knowledgeable consumers who were also educated enough to write about their fondness for fine food. Yeah, there's a a whole secondary discussion that could be had, which we're not diving into here about the fact that probably any of the food prepared for a lot of these people was prepared by people who were very skilled, but were in fact enslaved labor, which, of course, ancient Greece and Rome had its own whole culture of like that being a very inexpensive way to run one's home, um, which is a, a very messed up thing in and of itself. But it also is something to keep in mind as we talk about like all of the ways things get prepared these people are writing about it, but they're really leaning on people, other people, to do that heavy lifting in terms of the work. And so, with all of this in mind, we come to what is believed to be the oldest known cookbook in the West, and that is Dure Coquinaria, which translates to On the Subject of Cooking. And this book comes with a number of caveats and question marks. 
It's believed to have been compiled initially in the first century, although the oldest surviving copy is estimated to have been made sometime in the ninth century, so hundreds of years later. Additionally, it's not known how closely that surviving version might resemble its predecessors. It was probably edited, augmented, and otherwise changed over the centuries. And, of course, it was copied by hand, so there are probably just errors or stylistic changes made to better appeal to the sensibilities of any given copy's time of creation. Yeah, you'll also see that probably in terms of actually writing it down, these may have been sort of gathered together from first century recipes, but not actually written down in a collected group until later. It's There are a lot of question marks about the, the beginning point of this collection of recipes. And the other big question mark around the book is who wrote it to begin with? So the name of Picius is associated with several different people in relation to this book, and it might be even a more generalized word to describe food lovers. This reminds me a little bit of the um, the Trotula and the Trotta of Salerno, who we talked about uh, not that long ago on the show, and just sort of the question marks around, was this a person? Was it a title? Like, <laughs> what exactly are we talking about here? Uh, while we might never know with certainty who Apicius was, the person who is most often cited as the most likely candidate is Marcus Gavius Apicius, who was an influential Roman merchant from the first century. And we're going to talk all about Marcus Gavius Apicius, at least what we know of him, after we pause for a sponsor break. <laughs> The legend of Marcus Gavius Apicius's foodie proclivities is fairly epic. The wealth he acquired in business is said to have been spent almost entirely in pursuit of thrilling, unique, and exceptional eating experiences. One story goes that he traveled from Rome to Libya simply because he had been told that the prawns that could be found in Libya were just exquisite. This trip was apparently a bust, though. He got home unimpressed. Apparently, he, as he neared the shore, a boat of fishermen approached the ship that he was traveling on and showed him the prawns they had available. And he asked if there were any finer in the land. And when they said no, he had his own ship turn around to go back home. This is not worth making land. I would rather just stay on the ship. <laughs> Uh, depending on on what source you're reading, you'll also see those prawns listed as crawfish or like another crustacean. There's clearly some uh, translation going on there, but just, you know, the, the lesson is the same. He found them insufficient. <laughs> but in addition to food adventures, it appears that Marcus Gavius Apicius was also pretty invested as a scholar of food, even though this may have been considered kind of exceptionally indulgent at the time. Uh, he has also been credited with creating a cooking school to instruct cooks based on the research and the information that he had gathered over the years. All of the globe-trotting and research into food that Marcus Gavius Apicius did was also expensive. It was so expensive that he ended up spending his whole fortune chasing down the various flavors that excited and unfortunately sometimes eluded him like those prawns. He was also known to throw huge, huge banquets. If they were anything like the ones that we mentioned from literature at the time, it is no surprise that his finances were really completely drained by the end of his life. And the end of his life is kind of its own story. It's one that was recounted by numerous writers of the time, including Seneca the Younger. 
And while some of the details vary depending on which specific account you're looking at, the basic version is that when Marcus Gavius Apicius realized his money was running out, he made the decision that death was his best option. Now, this reason is sometimes given as a fear that he would starve to death. That doesn't really hold water because he actually still had quite a bit of money. Um, You'll see different numbers bandied about, but it's like in the, you know, thousands or sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, The other reason often cited for his decision to take his own life was that he knew he no longer had enough money to live that life of pursuing knowledge and deliciousness at this sort of grand scale. And so, according to pretty much every version, he staged one last lavish banquet, and he poisoned himself at its conclusion. This is, of course, a deeply melodramatic story, and we don't even have any certain evidence that this is anything more than an exaggerated tale told so often that it just came to be believed as a truth. But we also don't know otherwise about this food lover's end, so this has kind of been the accepted with an asterisk story of his life. But here's the important thing, though. If this is the Apicius who's named in the manuscript, Marcus Gavius Apicius was probably the inspiration for the book's name, not the person who wrote the book. As a well-known gastronome, he would probably have been exactly the type of person you would dedicate a cookbook to. And even so, the earliest estimation for the book's completion is still centuries after he lived. That was in the 4th century. So Athenius, whose writings we mentioned earlier, actually references Apicius the man, but not this cookbook or this gathering of writings uh, in any of the writing that Athenius was doing in the 3rd century. So that suggests that this book itself may not have been particularly well known yet if it already existed at that time. Athenius also mentions recipes and dishes that were named for Marcus Gavius Apicius, so he was certainly well-known for his love of food. And possibly because of that fame, at some point the name Apicius became a common-use term. According to writings of the first-century Roman satirical poet Juvenal, the word Apicius was used to refer to a foodie. Juvenal was born a couple of decades after Marcus Gavius Apicius died, just for like a timeline reference. Yeah, so it would have been after he was gone, and it could have been by that point, 20 years later, people were just being like, oh, you're kind of an Apicius, aren't you? You're really, you're really fancy in your food choices. I'm going to start introducing that in casual conversation, FYI. <laughs> uh, so to continue the case that De Recoquinaria, as it has survived today, doesn't really appear to be the work of a food-loving aristocrat like Marcus Gavius Apicius, it just isn't written in a way that someone of that station would write. It's possible that Apicius was the collector of the various recipes, or even that he may have paid for an initial effort at bringing them together, like this was his little financial project. But the reality is we don't know who Apicius is in relation to this book, and even the Marcus Gavius theory is really an educated guess without any hard evidence. According to Anne Garner, curator, Center for the History of Medicine and Public Health, in a post that she wrote for the Center in 2015, quote, These recipes appear to be written by and for cooks. The Center for the History of Medicine and Public Health acquired their 9th century manuscript, which is one of the oldest known surviving copies in the 1920s. And it was rebound and restored in 2006. Yeah, I think I didn't uh, verify this, but I read one account that it had already been 
kind of rebound prior to that. And so it wasn't like they were they were completely redoing it. They were just trying to, you know, maintain it for posterity. Uh, and that version of the book was written by hand, and it was written by several different people. It was created in a monastery in Fulda, Germany, and it's possible that the Fulda book was used as a teaching or a practice document for scribes. And that's uh, one theory that comes up because there are a number of strikethroughs in the text, you know, kind of rewritten and fixed errors and it's also not heavily decorated. There is another 9th century copy of the manuscript that appears to have been copied from the same source as the one from Fulda, although that source document has been lost. That other 9th century copy is in the Vatican Library, and the Vatican copy contains the same text, but it's illuminated with gilt accents, so it's a lot fancier than that other copy. Yeah, you'll sometimes see the two side by side, and you can see, like, this looks like a notebook of writing, and this looks like a fancy pants unicorn book. (laughs) It's very beautiful, and the illustrations are super detailed. Um, Beginning in 1498, Dura Coquinaria started to have print runs for wider distribution. The first of these was in Milan. The second run came from Venice two years later. And since those first two runs, it has been reprinted numerous times in a variety of languages. Uh, There was also another book, titled Apici Excerpta de A Binidario, and that was produced by a nebulous figure named Vinidarius in the 8th century. And while these excerpts of Apicius that uh, Vinidarius produced aren't really duplicates of what most editions of the Apicius manuscript include, they are often included with printings of De Recoconaria as supplemental material because the style is very similar. It does kind of match up and seem like it could be of the same group that maybe some of those had been culled and then got used in this later smaller publication. This cookbook has been copied and reprinted for centuries, but it didn't make it into the English language until 1926, when Joseph Dahmer's Veiling published his translation, and also made a case to encourage academia to just embrace food scholarship. He describes in the preface to the book how studying food offers insight into the lives of the people who ate it, writing, quote, It has been often said that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, so here is hoping that we may find a better way of knowing old Rome and antique private life through the study of this cookery book. He reiterates this belief in the opening line of the book's section of analysis with, quote, Anyone who would know something worthwhile about the private and public lives of the ancients should be well acquainted with their table. I feel like this is like the flag that we could carry through every episode of Unearthed, right? We talk about it all the time. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, now we know that they ate grains, which means that they were either trading or doing their own. It really is like a a way to, to engineer your model of what it was like to live in these previous times. Veiling also cautions in his book about not leaning on presumptions and partial facts that have been repeated over the years so many times that people have taken them as fact rather than examining historical evidence more carefully, writing, quote, they have become fixed ideas, making reconstruction difficult for anyone who would gain a picture along rational lines. Veiling lists the three Latin editions of the Apicius book that he used for his translation. The first was a 1541 edition by Albinus Torinus, and the second was the work of Martinus Lister, who produced multiple editions of the book between 1705 and 1709. 
The third was a 1922 edition by C. Giarratano and Friedrich Vollmer. And you'll notice, of course, that these are all editions that came out well after the recipes are believed to have been collected initially, like many hundreds of years. <laughs> hundreds of years, yeah. Yeah, it is it is one of those things that uh, I I wanted to make sure we pointed that out because we're talking about this ancient book, but we're talking about a version that may not bear all that much resemblance to the initial one. We don't know. And that Geratano Volmer edition in particular got some rather harsh comments in the classical review when it came out in 1922. Uh, here is an excerpt of the review penned by classical scholar Wallace Martin Lindsay, and it gives you evidence into how hard it can be to work on a project like this that reaches so far back into human history. He writes, quote, Geratano did what nine out of ten editors in these days would do. He contented himself with the manuscripts within reach. The ninth-century manuscript in the Vatican Library, the other Italian Renaissance manuscripts, he did not cross the sea to Cheltenham, where, in a library whose door opens but to golden keys, is imprisoned another ninth-century manuscript of Apicius, destined, doubtless, for the shelves of some dollar king whose freakish son will use its pages to light a super cigar. Indeed, he seemed unaware of its existence. Luckily, Vollmer intervened. The two 9th century manuscripts are the only foundation for an edition. So, uh, this is pretty harsh. (laughs) I like that he manages to not only criticize the editor, but also, like, society at large. Like, none of you value history! Like a hypothetical book buyer. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) However, Lindsay does go on to praise this edition in the review, even referring to it as a gem, in spite of those initial criticisms (laughs) about relying on too late... (laughs) version. Right. He definitely uh, praises Vollmer for his involvement in the work and and seems to think that it would have been a disaster without him. Uh, And the work of Vollmer, even predating the publication of that edition, also tackles the subject of the nature of the Latin that's used in the available manuscripts. So this is something that has caused a lot of debate over the years because a lot of it is written in what is called vulgar Latin. That really just means it's like colloquial or casual Latin as opposed to more formal classical Latin. And Vollmer arrived at the conclusion that this was part of the book being copied as it passed through time and that probably somewhere in the 4th or 5th century, one of the copies that was made that survived was in the more casual language form. So this is something probably most of us are familiar with. It's sort of like if you were to copy a recipe out of an old cookbook and abbreviate or shift the verbiage to more modern sensibilities. But there have also been historians over the years, including Lindsay, who have made the case that because it's a book of cookery, really a how-to manual, not philosophy or literature, that the Apicius manuscript might have always been in vulgar Latin right from the start. That would make sense in a lot of ways, but that also doesn't entirely hold because there are some sections of the book that use more classical Latin, and that suggests that the sections in vulgar Latin may have been integrated into the text over the years. So in the 1926 English translation, Veiling establishes his theory 
that uh, I, th- I think has continued to persist, that this is not the work of any one person, but it is the work of many. He writes, quote, In our opinion, unfounded, of course, by positive proof, the Apicius book is somewhat of a gastronomic Bible, consisting of ten different books by several authors, originating in Greece and taken over by the Romans, along with the rest of Greek culture as spoils of war. These books or chapters or fragments thereof must have been in vogue long before they were collected and assembled in the present form. So now that we've talked about the murky origins and attribution of this book, coming up we will talk about its contents, but first we will take a quick break to hear from the sponsors who keep Stuff You Missed in History class going. The contents of De Recoquinaria don't entirely resemble modern cookbooks, although if you listen to any of our previous episodes with food journalist and historian Anne Byrne, you probably won't be surprised that the recipes in Apicius are not terribly specific when it comes to actual directions. <laughs> you have to know a little bit of what's going on. Uh, there have been theories that this was due to the assumption that people who would be reading it would know their way around food prep, and they simply didn't need all of that extra Uh, language. There's also a likelihood that this group of recipes was always intended for private use and never as a published manual, but more like something to be shared among foodies. The brevity of instructions could also maybe have been as a means to conserve writing materials. In terms of arrangement, though, the book might feel really familiar to anybody who has worked with a modern cookbook. The chapters are arranged by ingredient, and this is an area where things can once again diverge from what might feel familiar because some of those ingredients, like flamingo, are not things that are commonly consumed today, at least not here in the U.S. The ingredients are ruled to a degree by season, location, and a lack of preservation options. Yeah, whereas today, I think, particularly in the in the U.S. and other parts of the world, you could pick up a cookbook that has even things that are maybe not in season or or a little bit harder to get. And you can probably find them mm-hmm. at your local market or whatever. But this is a time when obviously, like, they didn't have produce year-round of every variety, and they did not have. So there's some of that plays into it as well. Um, there are also some ingredients in this book that are mentioned that have kind of nebulous meanings. So one of them is the word liquimen. This is used almost any time that anything liquid would be used, like a stock or a gravy or a broth uh, that might come into play. And without understanding a recipe's context, it might be difficult to figure out which version of liquimen is actually intended to be used. There is also a fish sauce that's referenced several times called garum that would have at one point referred to a sauce created with a very specific fish, but in this case it seems to be applied pretty liberally throughout without that level of specificity. So it's kind of like any fish sauce. Uh, And this means that you can't really take all of these recipes literally. Again, they have to be considered in context. But there are also a lot of ingredients and seasonings that remain staples in kitchens today. Cumin is featured throughout, as are eggs and leeks and pine nuts, savory, pepper, and parsley. The first book of the cookbook is called The Careful Experienced Cook, and it offers up recipes for alcoholic libations, as well as an array of ways to rescue items that are past their prime, maybe have begun to spoil a little bit. I thought about this and wondered if it would really gross you out, Tracy, because I no, know. No, it's fine. <laughs> 
Food safety is important. Yeah, but most of the time, the things that make things spoil aren't the same things that make you sick. Right. So, like, if there's a little mold on the bread, you can just cut that piece of the bread off. Yeah. Reading some of these, I was like, oh, don't eat that. But <laughs> Yeah, sure, sure. But again, it's not the same constant supply that we would have now. So you d- would have had to rescue things. Uh, one of the recipes in this first section that I, of course, gravitated to is for a rose wine. And it reads, make rose wine in this manner. Rose petals, the lower white part removed, sewed into a linen bag and immersed in wine for seven days. Thereupon, add a sack of new petals, which allow to draw for another seven days. Again, remove the old petals and replace them by fresh ones for another week. Then strain the wine through the colander. Before serving, add honey, sweetening to taste. Take care that only the best petals, free from dew, be used for soaking. There's also a recipe for rose wine made without roses using citrus leaves as a substitute. Sneaky. Uh, The advice on keeping oysters instructs the reader simply to, quote, fumigate a vinegar barrel with pitch, wash it out with vinegar, and stack the oysters in it. See, that's a little grosser to me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why an oyster stack kind of icked me out as well, well, but... uh, And the things in oysters that might make one ill will definitely just multiply (laughs) if they're not (laughs) dealt with. Anyway, book two is titled Minces, and it gives recipes for making several kinds of sausage, meat puddings, and meatloaves. For example, to make a cuttlefish croquette, quote, the meat is separated from bones, skin chopped fine and pounded in the mortar, shape the force meat into neat croquettes and cook them in liquamen. They are displayed nicely on a large dish. So simple. Just cook it. It's fine. (laughs) Just cook it. Just cook it. Book three is The Gardener, and there are dozens of recipes to prepare fruits and vegetables in this one, including pumpkin, melon, cabbage, cauliflower, beets, turnips, carrots, parsnips, and many others. Uh, Vegetable dishes promoting good health are featured, and in many cases, there are numerous preparation descriptions for any given ingredient. For example, there is a recipe for general pumpkin or squash preparation involving cumin, stock, and pepper. And then something called pumpkin alexandrine, boiled pumpkin, fried pumpkin, which I kind of want to try doing, pumpkin boiled and fried, mashed pumpkin, and pumpkin stewed with a hen and then garnished with hard-skinned peaches and truffles. The beet preparation is quite interesting. Quote, to make a dish of beets that will appeal to your taste, slice leeks and crush coriander and cumin. Add raisin wine. Boil all down to perfection. Bind it. Serve separate from the broth with oil and vinegar. Why is it a beet recipe that is made of leeks? Well, there are beets already in there and the leeks are added. The follow-up recipe for beets, which is simply listed as another way, and the English translation says, quote, cook the beets with mustard seed and serve them well pickled in a little oil and vinegar. It's more like a letter from your Nana than a cookbook. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just cook them. Uh, The fourth book is titled Miscellanea, and it features boiled dinners, finely minced dishes, porridge, gruel, and a section headed as appetizing dishes. That means appetizers, not just things that are yummy. There are a number of pies listed here, but these are generally savory pies. Even the pumpkin pie that they list here is really more of like a, a roasted pumpkin with pepper on it. 
Book five is legumes, so it's full of peas, lentils, and beans. And there's a particular recipe in this section that's unusual. Felling even notes in his translation that there's just nothing quite comparable to it in any other source. And this is a layered dish, which the translation calls peas supreme style. Sort of like a layered casserole. It has layers of crushed nuts, cooked peas, sausage, bacon, leeks, and diced meats, uh, all on hand with a layer of peas over each other ingredient. It's then, quote, baked thoroughly. And a sauce is made with the yolks of hard-boiled eggs, white pepper, honey, white wine, and broth heated in a saucepan. I'd try that, honestly. I would, too. It's like pea lasagna. Yeah. (laughs) And it sounds kind of fascinating to me, and I would probably eat it. Book six delves into ways to cook fowl, including birds that you might expect, like chicken and goose and duck, but also crane, ostrich, peacock, parrot, and the previously mentioned flamingo. And this is where Apicius covers how to prepare, quote, birds of all kinds that have a goatish smell, which is followed by a section titled Another Treatment of Odor. So there's definitely a good bit of advice about masking items that have basically gone off or started to... (laughs) Started to smell a little (laughs) gamey. I don't know why uh, birds with a goatish smell just sounds like the title of a poem to me. In book seven, the text covers sumptuous dishes. As you might expect, these are all very rich. Most of the dishes are made with fatty cuts of meat. This recipe for fresh ham mentions gingerbread, but this wouldn't have been a sweet. It would have been more like a biscuity bread made with savory spices. Quote, A fresh ham is cooked with two pounds of barley and 25 figs. When done, skin, glaze the surface with a fire shovel full of glowing coals, spread honey over it, or what's better, put it in the oven covered with honey. When it has a nice color, put in the saucepan raisin wine, pepper, a bunch of roux, and pure wine to taste. When this is done, pour half of it over the ham, and in the other half, soak specially made gingerbread in the remnant of the sauce. After most of it is thoroughly soaked into the bread, add to the ham. Sounds kind of interesting as well. I think a lot is depending on exactly what the consistency of that gingerbread is. Right? If it's biscuity and you soak it in a sauce, that actually sounds pretty nummy. Yeah. Uh, it's like biscuits and wine gravy. <laughs> um Book seven also offers up some sweeter fare. So it's mostly very simple things like bread that has been soaked in milk and then fried and then covered with honey or dates stuffed with nuts and then drizzled with honey. The eighth book is titled Quadrupeds and it encompasses everything from wild boar to dormouse. Game animals like venison, wild goat, and gazelle are mentioned in the text along with preparations and appropriate sauces. And book nine covers seafood. Uh, And I really loved this one. Of course, it's on the Mediterranean, so seafood is prominent. And the broiled lobster recipe in this case evidences how there are just some food preparations that have persisted through time. This one reads, Make thus. If broiled, they should appear in their shell, which is opened by splitting the live lobster in two. Season with pepper sauce and coriander sauce, moisten with oil, and broil them on the grill. 
When they are dry, keep on basting them more and more with oil or butter until they are properly broiled. Book 10 is labeled The Fisherman, and it's largely a section on sauces, believed that this was probably in addition to the text, since there is already plenty of seafood content in the books and the chapters that come before it. So, uh, having read all this, it's easy to see why scholars and historians have come to view the study of food and food preparation as such an important part of human history. And in the literal hundreds of recipes collected in this cookbook, it becomes pretty easy to consider both the differences and the similarities of our own tables and those of previous civilizations. Despite the unusual nature of some of the ingredients, a lot of the advice and direction in the Apicius text is pretty similar to the way things are done today, all the way down to the tools. And the words of Velling, which seem like a good place to wrap this one up, quote, Our own age is but the grandchild of antiquity. The words we utter in their roots are those of our grandfathers. And so do many dishes we eat today resemble those once enjoyed by Apicius and his friends. Dun, dun, dun. I have so many thoughts for our Friday episode. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We should probably also uh, mention that since this episode is sponsored by Pinterest, we have pinned some things in our Pinterest that are related to this book and the recipes in it. Yes, it is fascinating and inspiring to look at all of these old recipes and wonder what one might do with them today. And we'll talk a little bit about that in in our Friday episode. But for now, I have cooking-related email about a different episode. This is our uh, related to our recipe on Lydia Mariah Child, and it's from our listener Betsy, who writes, Dear Holly and Tracy, longtime listener, first-time emailer, I wanted to thank you for your most recent episode on one of my favorite people, Lydia Mariah Child. Mariah has played an outsized role in my life and education, but there was a huge amount I didn't know about her until I listened to your episode. Throughout high school, I interned at Old Sturbridge Village, a living history museum depicting life in the late 1830s New England. So I learned to cook in large part over an open hearth and using the recipes from her cookbook, The Frugal Housewife. I no longer work at that particular museum, but I use the skills I learned there daily. For anyone curious, her recipes, called receipts, can easily be adapted to a modern oven or stove. It's pretty easy to approximate average cooking times and temperatures for different kinds of food. The harder part is interpreting vocabulary that has changed. Indian meal is cornmeal, and a gill is half a cup. I particularly like her curried fowl, ideal for old tough birds, but any grocery store chicken will do. Indian pudding, caraway cakes, and gingerbread. A recipe most people enjoyed learning about, though in my experience it always comes out soggy, is her recipe for cupcake. So nowadays cupcake is baked in a cup, but in Mrs. Child's day, cupcake was measured in cups. One cup butter, two cups sugar, three cups flour, and four eggs. I have read The Frugal Housewife cover to cover numerous times, and I knew she had also written fiction and been an abolitionist, but I didn't know the extent of her activism, scholarly education, or editorial career. So thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to learn about her many accomplishments. And then she uh, asks us for some sources, which I will send her, and then writes, also, one of you mentioned something about how you were skeptical about there being deep snow in November in New England. That was me. That, <laughs> I'm not able to verify this, but the explanation I have been given in the past is that we were still in the Little Ice Age and also the date of Thanksgiving hadn't been standardized yet. It was just when the governor wanted it to be. So sometimes 
It was in December. Uh, Once again, thanks for the episode and for your podcast in general. I listen to nearly every episode with interest, and I've got several friends and also my mother, whom I listen to this episode with, into the show. Your friend and listener, Betsy. Thank you so much, Betsy. That's um, uh, It perfectly makes a a little bookend for this episode about cooking to talk about a much more recent thing, but still something we have to interpret if we want to make those recipes today. Yeah, and that that explanation of snow on Thanksgiving makes total sense to me and was just not stuff that was at the top of my mind when I speculated on it. No, me either. Uh, yeah, so uh, I hope everyone is inspired to eat something delicious by all of this. Yeah. Uh, if you would like to, you can write us an email and tell us what you ate as a consequence. <laughs> That's at HistoryPodcast at iHeartRadio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And if you would like to subscribe to the show, we would like you to do that. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app or wherever it is you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 